You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 273, and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. I'm excited to introduce my guest today, Shawnee Gao. Shawnee is a full-stack software engineer on Square's business operations platform team. They provide an ecosystem of solutions for more specialized teams to build and monitor operations at Square. As a maintainer of a platform code base, her work focuses on creating robust and scalable APIs and abstracting away lower-level framework code, which is what led her to her interest in Ruby metaprogramming and GraphQL. Welcome to the show, Shawnee. Hello, Brittany. Greetings from San Francisco, our cold and cloudy city, like 50 degrees outside right now. I miss that. (laughs) Well, Shawnee, what is your developer origin story? Yes. So prior to college, I had literally no concept of computer science. And my idea of a software engineer was nothing more than, you know how in action movies there's like the main character but then there's always that guy that's sitting in a dark room in a chair that's like giving him passwords and remotely opening their doors at the perfect time like that was more or less all i knew about computer (laughs) science until college and you know at college i had the serious i don't know what i'm doing with my life syndrome and i really did take classes in literally every sector of my school which was um in case you're wondering, Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. And I took classes in um, pre-med, liberal arts, business, art, and I actually even took a ballet class, which was my lowest grade of the semester, until I landed into um, computer science. And I really just fell in love with the culture of the department, because to be frank, like, a lot of my classes, the number of times I actually attended lecture, I can probably count on one hand. But you can bet I was at every single TA hour lab session, um, Q&A, because that was just how I learned. It was incredibly peer-driven and collaborative environment. And, you know, I ended up switching to the McKelvey Engineering School at Washington University. And um, I like to say that the worst, most painful Um, lab assignments makes the best friends. And it was actually through one of my lab friends that I got a referral here at Square. And um, I worked a few jobs before Square and I wasn't totally satisfied with them. And Square was actually my third job less than a year out of college. And I have been here um, for two years, just a little bit over two years now. And, you know, I love it. That's excellent. So I completely agree with you that I always tell people who are learning how to code that your first job is going to be difficult because you don't know what you're doing. You know, everything's new. But really, when you hit that second and third job, that's where you hit that sweet spot. Yeah. You just like don't know anything different. You know, you got (laughs) to. I really jumped around quite a lot. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I did as well. So while Square is an established name, can you please tell us more about Square for those who are unfamiliar? So Square started in 2009 as the Square Reader, which is most recognizable as that little white square that you can plug into you know, a smartphone, a tablet, and download the Square app, and immediately you can start taking credit card or debit card payments. And the origin story is actually the two founders who are, um, ironically, 
two St. Louisans, and I'm from St. Louis, um, Jim McKelvey and Jack Dorsey. Jim had a glass blowing shop and he was like, you know, I'm missing out on sales because I can only take cash and I don't have a card reader. And the idea was like, well, we have like these little supercomputers in our pockets. Let's do something about it. And eventually, you know, from that point on to today, we've become, you know, a larger company that builds a variety of tools to empower individuals from like e-commerce, business loans, consumer financing. Um, we have our own debit card, inventory, cash app for peer-to-peer -peer payments, and of course, the classic point of sales um, system. And more interestingly for developers who are listening to this, we do have public APIs and SDKs where, you know, you don't have to buy our products. You can build your own point of sales with, you know, our libraries. And of course, we have a Ruby library. So we really turned from this like small idea um, into what we call ourselves an omni-channel solution. Basically, we build anything you can think of to help an individual to participate in the economy, the U.S. economy, that is. And we also do have products internationally, but not as um, as many as we do here in the U.S. Very cool. Well, you touched upon this, but I get really excited when established companies continue to use Ruby because it does, in fact, scale. How is Ruby used at Square? So Square, um, we started as a singles Rails app, as most startups at that time was. And, um, you know, like, so... We have, I call it kind of our sibling company, Twitter, both Square and um, Twitter were started by Jack, right? And we were both Rails applications and Square has continued to use Ruby, whereas like Twitter has migrated off of Ruby onto Scala. And you mentioned scaling. And I think that's like a great, like that's like a really hot term at this point. But I, when I went to um, the Ruby Kaigi conference, like Mots loves telling the story about how, you know, Twitter, even though they eventually migrate off of Ruby because they were like, Ruby doesn't scale for our purposes, it is still a Ruby success story because um, you pro Jack probably could not have prototyped Twitter with Scala um, at the same speed and ease that he did like he could have with a Rails app. And um, similar to Square. And we have, you know, on a different path where we have maintained using Ruby, but instead of being a large Rails app, a monolith, we've broken down into more of a microservice infrastructure. And Ruby is one of our three most commonly used language for backend services, at least, along with Go and Java. And we're actually really prolific in it. Um, between Ruby microservices and Ruby gems, we crank out on average of like once a month. And for all of you know the shortfalls of Ruby on Rails, our philosophy here at Square with Ruby is that the productivity that Ruby and Rails allows for an engineer is worth it. And we just kind of aggressively throw hardware um, for um, all the, for any performance or memory needs. And, you know, like there are certain services because we are now, you know, more of a service architecture. If certain services needs like constant, like throughput, low latency, we'll write those in Java because that is the performance level that we need it to be. But for more like, you know, internal apps, um, like web apps, we use, we just use Rails for the most part. And it's been proven to be incredibly productive. And since we do have a strong testing culture here at Square, um, we have really good toolings to catch the things that, you know, one may typically miss um, in Ruby because it's not a typed language. And also we use protobuffers um, as our primary 
form of communication between services. And protobuffers, you know, it works really great with Java. And to get it to work with Ruby, which is a non-type language, we have a lot of custom tooling um, to make protobuffers work for us. So I'm actually going to have to admit right there, I don't know what a protobuffer is. So protobuffers is short for protocol buffers, and they are actually Google's language neutral and platform agnostic way of serializing data. So you, it is technically language neutral, but it is a lot easier to use with a statically typed language like Java than it is to be used with a non-statically typed language like Ruby. And um, basically the ways work is you structure your language, your message is very clear. Like this message has these fields and these fields are a specific type. They are a string, integer, whatever. And you can also nest fields like this field is an array. And within this array, it is these fields. So it's incredibly specific and it's also really fast and the package sizes are really small. Um, and we use protobuffers because we like having an API contract. And you know, like the company's so big, if we don't have a tight API contract and a very um, structured way of communicating data across services, it'd be incredibly messy and no one would know what to expect from one another. Yeah, especially since you're dealing with financial payments. So that must be incredibly important. Yeah, and it's like the data is highly relational. It's, you know, also sometimes always changing depending on laws. And yep. <laughs> Well, while I loved hearing about protobuffers, and I'm definitely going to dig into that, the reason I brought you onto the podcast today was to discuss your recent Ruby Kaiji talk, GraphQL migration, a use case for metaprogramming. So let's break that down. What is metaprogramming? Yeah, so metaprogramming, I'm going to start by saying that metaprogramming is writing code that generates code at runtime. But if we maybe then step back and think Ruby is a language where at runtime, these concepts like variables, objects, classes, and methods still exist. So that's why you can like run a program and you can stick a pry in the middle and look at myobject.class, you know, and do all this type of introspection versus a compiled language where like in C++, you run the program and these concepts are gone, right? Like there's no such thing as classes and objects. It's just locations and memory. So Ruby with this type of flexibility is like, if we can read it at runtime, then we can also write it at runtime. So metaprogramming is fundamentally manipulating these language constructs um, dynamically when you're running the application. And a very solid example is active record. And anyone who has ever used active record has probably benefited from their super nice APIs where you have these, you can have like any table, say zoo, I don't know, and you have, any bespoke fields like a table named um, a column named like species or number of legs and you can do find by species and it just works and you know you didn't write this method and you can bet that find by species is not an active record source code so how how does this method exist right and what active record does is metaprogram which is at runtime the library goes and it looks at the database schema grabs the fields off of your table and be like, okay, I know it has species, number of legs, whatever, and then defines this find by blank method at runtime. So when you use it, it is there. So with that example, you see that metaprogramming is really used for writing these boilerplate and more or less identical methods um, 
in one in just like in one code path. And it's great for frameworks like Active Record and Rails that have strong conventions. And if you look at Rails, like their model is um, convention over configuration, right? And it is because it is so dense <laughs> in meta programming. You know, you have to name files a certain ways, otherwise it breaks things. Um, which leads to the other thing I wanted to mention about metaprogramming is I was actually careful about initially naming, putting metaprogramming in the title of my talk because sometimes it can get a bad rep because it does, it can lead to like really weird bugs and it makes, you know, logic potentially difficult to understand to other engineers because when you have these classes that may or may not exist at runtime, you can't just like chuck like a debugger in there and open it up and see what's going on. And also it is probably the best, the, the biggest pain point for all of Ruby's attempt to introduce static typing into the language, right? So that's why I do want to emphasize that metaprogramming is like a super valuable tool for lower level framework code and not so much so for like business, you know, application layer where, you know, the code might change pretty often based on requirements. But when used properly, metaprogramming, I think, is a very elegant solution. And it's great for writing DSLs. And, you know, with you said you were mentioning protobuffers earlier. To make protobuffers work with Ruby, we actually use metaprogramming to write a layer that wraps raw protobuffer messages and turns it into plain old Ruby objects so it can traverse through a Rails app much easier. Oh, that's incredibly cool. And I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I feel with newer developers, metaprogramming is a very ambitious concept to understand, but I do agree that it leads to very elegant code. So we're going to take a quick break from a word from our sponsor. OSCON has been ground zero to find out what you need to be in the know about the open source community for 20 years. Because software development now is essentially open source, we've expanded the OSCON program focus to examine what is driving software development forward today. Unlike other conferences, we cover open source projects no matter their origin or affiliation. Our program solely focuses on projects in areas of innovation including AI, infrastructure, blockchain, edge computing, architecture, and emerging languages. You'll hear from industry heavyweights like Holden Corral from Google, Rupert Deshear from CodeChicks, Julian Simon from AWS, and Allison McCauley from Unblock Future. You'll have a chance to network with experts and peers at many of the events OzCon offers, including author book signings, speed networking, Ignite OzCon, and our Better Together Diversity Networking Lunch. Prices start at just $9.25 when you register before April 19th. Listeners to the Ruby on Rails podcast can get 25% off most passes to OzCon when you go to OzCon.com slash Ruby and use the code Ruby20 during registration. Thank you to OzCon for sponsoring the show. And we're back. So you took the plunge to migrate Square's largest Ruby app to GraphQL. Can you tell us why you made this decision and how the technology team at Square tackled the project? For sure. So let me first give you some context on my team and the projects we work on. My team, we maintain a platform that kind of acts as a control center that we use to monitor and regulate operations at Square. For example, support or detecting fraud. And it started off as a single Rails app. And it was role was really to interconnect more specialized services and create a holistic picture of Square's data. And that was fine beginning, but with the scope of our business now, 
this single Rails app is over a quarter of a million lines of Ruby code, has like nearly 300 controllers and talks to easily over like 150 other services, internal services at Square. And it was getting to a point where, you know, we were supposed to build this tool where like, you know, other engineers can add on to and um, we can collaborate super easily, but it was becoming incredibly rigid and wasn't able to keep up with the speed of business requirements. So what this GraphQL came in when we pinpointed that one of our biggest stresses was our APIs and with REST, which I think like it's a great solution for certain use cases, but for us, you know, REST was becoming way too complicated and it was because our data is so, you know, related and comes from multiple resources, like I said, like over 150 different services, you know, just to create one profile, we maybe need to make a dozen Rust um, network calls. And especially when you want to add something new, it was difficult to go through the front end and the back end to like sort through how all of these Rust calls were being associated with each other in the model. And it was becoming not something that was scalable. So that is when we looked into GraphQL and it was, you know, kind of made by Facebook to solve all of these problems. And real quick, what GraphQL is, is similar to how REST is a set of ideas. Um, GraphQL is a totally different set of ideas. So in REST, each endpoint is one resource. And again, with our application to create a whole profile, maybe we're making a dozen different REST calls to fetch something from each of those resources. And we had a lot of problems with N plus one or fetching, under fetching. But with GraphQL, what we can do is we can create one smart endpoint and then the server goes off and does whatever it needs to do to, you know, put together the pieces that the front end asks for and then ship it back um, in the exact format that the client wants. And it really um, it caters more so to front end engineers than it does <laughs> to back end engineers. And that's why um, we were looking at metaprogramming to leverage ways of making this process easier. For some like technical transparency, what we use at Square is the GraphQL Ruby gem that is used by both um, GitHub and Shopify, and it provides a pretty good DSL for describing and executing your GraphQL schema. How can moving to GraphQL with metaprogramming improve the developer experience? Right. So the thing with migrating to GraphQL is that GraphQL itself is not difficult. Migrating an application that has been built on Rust and protobuffers for like seven years is the difficult part, right? So we're trying to convert like hundreds of internal APIs into this new technology. And, you know, we, like I said before, with protobuffers, we already have like our own DSL that wraps protobuffer objects and turns it into Ruby objects. And basically we thought, you know, we already did so much work in defining these Ruby models can we, for example, take some of that work that was done, leverage it, and then have, you know, GraphQL schemas generated automatically? And this is before I jump into the metaprogramming part, I do want to put a caveat in there that there's a lot of ideas out there for like automatically generating GraphQL APIs or like, you know, you hand them, you hand, or like some enterprise solution where you hand them your data and boom, out comes a GraphQL API. But what we've discovered when we're doing this is since GraphQL is such a different way of thinking than REST, you might not want a one-to-one -one conversion. You might just want to completely restructure your um, data model such that it fits the GraphQL mindset than this REST, you know, each request is one resource mindset that has been ingrained in us.
for so long. So back to metaprogramming. It can reduce boilerplate and error-prone work. For example, every single Ruby object will have to be defined as a GraphQL type, and then each field off of that object will have to become a GraphQL field, where if you have give it features like, can it be null or not? What type is it? And if you are using something like protobuffers or you have your own model layer where that kind of work is kind of already done, you can use metaprogramming and pick up, you know, either annotations that you do in your um, in your code, which is annotations is what I used in my demo. If, um, you know, listeners choose to go and look at it um, or, you know, if you are using, say, active record models, you could it could just read through those active record files. And there's actually a gem that exists out there. Um, called Graphoid that will generate GraphQL schemas based on, you know, your Mongo or your active record models. And something else to think about is testing. Um, testing can be incredibly painful for this type of thing, but if you use metaprogramming, what you can do is you can just test the generation of your code instead of each individual model. So if you know that what generates it is still correct, you can just test one code path instead of repeating testing several code paths that only have a slight difference. And I think that alone brings a much better um, developer experience. The other thing to note with GraphQL is that your GraphQL can exist in harmony with your REST APIs. It's not like an all or nothing. For us, you know, at the size that we are, everything has to be an incremental adoption, right? So, you know, we have some things where like, we think this is a good fit for this use case. We use GraphQL for this. This is not quite ready yet. We're still using Rust. And they can exist in harmony without being like, you know, out with the, in, out with the old and with the new. Uh, we, we don't have that. And same thing with metaprogramming. There's some things you should just not metaprogram. Like um, if it has, you know, more than a few edge cases, we like to stop thinking about it there. But if you have some really straightforward like models where you, you just need to pluck the fields off of it, I think metaprogramming is a totally good pattern to use for it. And at the end of the day, like what my team is trying to do is we're trying to be a self-service platform. And, and if another engineer needs to like say use our platform or expose a new data point, it would be, this is our future vision where they can just come in, add a few lines um, on top of our DSL, and then they can just focus on their own layer of business oriented, you know, app code and what, how our GraphQL API works and all that plumbing is abstracted away by us. They don't need to know how that works. And that would be like the vision for a future. So definitely like use these two tools responsibly, I guess, because understanding abstractions and knowing not to like abstract things away too early is definitely key to building, you know, a robust API and a robust shared code base that can scale in the future. That's great. Well, thank you so much for all these tips. I can't wait to use them myself. So how can our listeners follow you and Square? So you can follow Square in general on just Instagram and Twitter at Square. And then for developers, you can follow Square Dev, which is just Square D-E-V, or um, even I think more interactive would be our Slack um, workspace, which is just build with Square. And there, you, if you do use our APIs or have questions about it, you can actually get things answered in real time. That's such a great resource to have. Uh, yeah. 
So, and also we have our square corner block where we, you know, make announcements on, um, you know, new features and just what we're working on. And it's also, we're trying to um, internationalize it. So it could be, you know, it is in like Japanese, if you are a Japanese developer, that kind of stuff. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show this week. Listeners, I encourage you to take the time to watch Shawnee's talk. Link is in the show notes. Talk soon. All right. Thank you so much.